Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Good morning. I am glad that you're here, kiddos. If you would like to head out to elevate, and then we also have EGC this morning. Okay, so third, fourth, fifth grade, going through the New City Catechism. Um, we are, if you're a little chilly this morning, we're overcorrecting from the ladies' retreat uh, yesterday and uh, turning the temperature down. Um, but uh, very thankful. Um, my wife got to go to that, and her roommate, Amy, got to go, former roommate, not current, <laughs> former roommate. Um, Amy was the first person I told that I was going to marry her roommate, and they went down, uh, they went home that night and had a good laugh uh, about that. And so, um, uh-huh. we weren't dating or anything, that's right, to qualify all that, and I said, I'm going to marry your roommate, and... Uh, just move over now? We'll just move over now. All right. We're going to lay hands on this microphone here after the service. Uh, anyway, uh, so yeah, Amy went home and told Allison, and they laughed and laughed and laughed. And as I often say, who's laughing now? <laughs> so, uh, and my other joke is that 25 years ago, I married Amy Perry's best friend. Um, Anyway, uh, but I am, uh, this morning we're going to continue on in the Beatitudes, uh, which is the intro that Jesus gives to the Sermon on the Mount. And um, this is the opening of Matthew's recording, Matthew's retelling of Jesus' sermon. Matthew, Jesus is preaching to his own people. He's preaching to the people of Israel, to to the Jewish people. Um, So we have to understand that. Matthew is writing what Jesus said to the Jewish people. So Matthew's audience is, the, is also uh, to the Jewish people. And they're writing about this coming kingdom and a lot of what they refer to, a lot of what Matthew brings to light were the prophecies given in the book of Isaiah from the prophet Isaiah of this one day, of this kingdom that would be to come, this king that would sit on the throne of Israel forever. And so it's important that we understand all of that Uh, Because this list that Jesus starts off with here, this is not, and we're going to say this over and over again, this is not a list of virtues for us to pursue. So that if we accomplish these things, if we become poor in spirit, uh, then we will be virtuous and God saves the virtuous. That is not what this list is. Um, This is, God does not reward virtuous people. This is a list of those who have encountered the God of the universe, God-fearers, followers of Jesus. Um, And what Isaiah says is, this is good news to the God-fearer. This is a proclamation of victory to those who fear God. So uh, for those who are poor, for those who are humble, for those who are grieving and surrendered, this is a proclamation. Your life is not in vain. Your hope is not in vain. The The one who was foretold in the book of Isaiah is here. And this is good news. 
Um, this, uh, this past week, I watched the, the documentary or the docu-series, is that, I think that's the thing now, on the Murdoch family, the Murdoch murders. Has anybody else watched that? Um, all right. Uh, and uh, I literally got done watching it and clicked over to Facebook, and like three minutes after I clicked over, before they had announced the verdict of the of the trial, so I was like, that was that in the theme this morning. That was satisfying. Like I I was like, man, I wonder what's going on with that, and got an immediate answer. Uh, the Murdoch trial, and, and we're not going to spend much time on this at all. Basically, a wealthy family in South Carolina that, because of their wealth, because of their influence, because of their uh, their status in the community, they literally get away with murder. They subvert justice. Justice doesn't apply to them. Grandpa makes a phone call, makes everything go away. Um, and, uh, but if you watch the documentary or you hear the verdict, they did not quite get away uh, with murder. Um, but this morning I don't want to talk about I don't want to give you a story of power that corrupts justice. Instead, I want to tell you a beautiful story about one who stewarded power for restorative justice. Of the good news applying to someone who was hungering and thirsting for righteousness and for justice and how that, how that carried out. Uh, has anyone ever heard the name Clarence Jordan? Is anyone familiar with Clarence Jordan? Besides my son who heard me talking this morning. Uh, Clarence Jordan was born in 1912 in a small rural town called Talbotton, Georgia. Georgia? Talbotton? Anybody offended? Anybody from there that I'm going <laughs> to? Okay, then who cares? Small town in Georgia. Um, and he was born to a prominent family, the seventh of ten children uh, to a farming family. And even at a young age, Jordan recognized deep in the heart of the South that there was an economic and racial injustice that absolutely plagued his community, and it really bothered him. He enrolled at the University of Georgia in 1933 to, to pursue a degree in agriculture with the hope of addressing the issues of poverty and economic in, uh, inequalities through advanced scientific sharecropping techniques. But what he realized in college was that poverty wasn't simply an economic issue. It was a spiritual issue. So Jordan went on to seminary at the Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He would become well-known as a preacher and as a speaker and as a Greek scholar, but it continued to bother him a lot of the inequalities that he saw in the world around him, and he felt compelled to do more. He envisioned a place, a plot of land, where black people and white people could both work and live together, where they could share efforts, where they could share possessions, in a radical call to discipleship, integration, nonviolence, and to steward the stewardship of the land uh, and, their and its resources. And so he founded what became known as Koinonia Farms. Koinonia was, is the word for fellowship or gathering. It was it was the word given to these small communities of followers of Jesus who would meet regularly together uh, following the ministry of Jesus. It's the, it's the, uh, the beginning of the church. Um, and so there, this farm ran on three principles. All people are related in God's eyes. They all bear God's image. To live in accordance with Christ's love 
And then common ownership. Distributing, distribution according to first century Christian principles, not based on profit, but based on need. Jordan believed that, the incarnating, uh, that incarnating the love of Jesus was the most effective and life-transforming way of sharing and growing in the love of Christ. And he had a saying that he would say all the time, we haven't gotten anywhere until we've seen the word become flesh. This beautiful community would grow during the 1950s. They would have Bible studies. They would have youth camps over the summer. Uh, they would eat meals together. Uh, they, would, they would fellowship together. Uh, it continued to grow. People would come and join in on this farm. It was, I mean, it is almost straight out of Acts chapter 2. It's beautiful. But, as you can imagine, in the Deep South, it also faced intense scrutiny and backlash from the surrounding community. Threats, property damage, excommunication from churches, grand jury investigations, economic boycotts. In the 1950s, fences were cut, crops were stolen from fields, garbage dumped on the property, a truck's engine was ruined by sugar put in its gas tank, nearly 300 fruit trees were chopped to the ground, the farm's roadside market was bombed several times, eventually destroyed. Night riders sprayed machine gun bullets at the houses. Fires were set on the property, and crosses were burned on the lawns of black friends. But this group, called Koinonia, were not easily deterred. The economic boycott probably had was probably one of the more effective things, and so when they couldn't sell, they couldn't do the upkeep of the farm, uh, but they were able to move to a mail order system of shipping pecans across the country in order to keep the farm afloat. And their marketing slogan, I thought, was brilliant. Help us ship the nuts out of Georgia. <laughs> Clarence Jordan, a Greek scholar, directly from the Greek, wrote a Bible translation of the Gospels called the Cotton Patch Gospels. It was the Sermon on the Mount was translated into a more southern, explainable, or understandable among the southern folk, uh, and that was his translation. When Jesus saw the large crowd, he went up on the hill and sat down. His students gathered around him, and he began to teach him, and this is what be said. The spiritually humble are God's people, for they are citizens of his new order. They who are deeply concerned are God's people, for they will see their ideas become reality. They who are gentle are his people, for they will be his partners across the land. They who have an unsatisfied appetite for the right are God's people, for they will be given plenty to chew on. The generous are God's people, for they will be treated generously. Those whose motives are pure are God's people, for they will have spiritual insight. Clarence Jordan had a, a shack that he called his writing shack that he would sneak out to uh, after work hours to do his writing and his studying. And he would end up passing away, actually, uh, in the shack in 1969, a mere 57 years old. The county coroner refused to come on the property of Koinonia Farms to pronounce his death. A year before he died, 
a man, a young lawyer named Millard Fuller. Anybody know that name? Maybe a little bit more recognizable. Millard and his wife, Linda. They came to visit some friends on the farm, and they planned to just stay a couple days, but they were so in awe of what they said, they saw they stayed a couple months. After Jordan passed away, inspired by his time at the farm, developing several ideas toward partnership housing, Millard and Linda Fillmore, uh, sorry, not Millard Fillmore, he was the president. Did you know Millard Fillmore was the name of an actual U.S. president? There's your, there's your other piece of history. Millard and Linda Fuller would then go on from there to co-found, anybody know? Habitat for Humanity. And the beautiful community goes on. The Beatitudes are not a list of virtues in the sense that eager and idealistic people could achieve them and declare themselves virtuous. The Beatitudes are the pronouncement of good news, of hope to the poor, to the humble, to the meek, to the suffering God-fearers, followers of Jesus, that God's presence and God's blessing is on you and with you. Even when it may not seem like it. It is the hope to continue on when God's economy simply does not look like the economy of the kingdom of man. Clarence Jordan did not start Koinonia Farms to get God's approval. He started it because he felt and knew God's approval. Compelled by God's approval. So, Last week, after a couple weeks of intro, we finally get to the actual Sermon on the Mount. And this week, uh, we started off last week with the first three Beatitudes, um, which is, Beatitude simply means blessing. And so this is a list of, of kind of those who are blessed. This is not a way to obtain blessing by doing these things. This is the thing that, that people who have had an encounter with Jesus do. It's the proclamation of blessing to those who have been transformed and are being transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit. It's an announcement of good news straight from the mouth of Isaiah for the poor, for the humble. You may forfeit the city of man, but yours is now the kingdom of God. For those who mourn and grieve over the state of this world, over the state of our own soul, it is the hope of the one who will comfort you the great comforter, the great defender. For the surrendered, the meek, those who give up vengeance or payback, it is the promise of an inheritance that is all the earth. And so this week we're going to keep moving forward in this list. We're going to walk through the next three Beatitudes. So we're, not going, to, we're going to finish up next week. I pro hope, I hope. The Beatitudes, by the way, are the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. The whole Sermon on the Mount is all the way from chapter 5 to chapter 7 in Matthew. So, again, the word blessing. We talked about this last week. The word blessing can mean joyful. It can mean happy. But in our current cultural context, we have way different understandings of the word joyful and the word happy. So what I prefer to use is the word blessing, meaning the presence of of God. This is what we talk about every time we gather. The promise is that God's presence will be with us, and then as we go, he will be with us. So it is joyfulness and happiness because of the
the presence of God, regardless of what is happening around us, regardless of how it looks in an earthly economy, kingdom of city, kingdom of man economy, our joy and our hope and our happiness come from God's presence. So we're going to start this week, this first beatitude this week, with a desperation for righteousness, a hunger and thirst for righteousness. And what does that word mean? What does the word righteousness mean? A better question to ask is probably, what did Jesus mean when he said that word righteous? To hunger and thirst for righteousness. So what do you think of when you think of the word righteousness? It's not like open forum. Just to start thinking. Um, although we could, we could do that, but... Um, what do we think of when we think of the word righteousness? Most of us, and, and you, can, you can nod in agreement if this is you, most of us think probably in some, way, in some way salvation, right? That we have been made righteous, that we are acceptable. We've been declared righteous. Um, to be saved, to be made right. And more often than not, especially in our culture, we will apply that personally. Though I am sinful, because of the work of Jesus, I will be made clean. I will be made righteous. Am I, am I way off here? Okay. And I want to tell you, that is correct and vastly incomplete. And we have a thing about this. That is true, but it's incomplete. A Jewish understanding of the word righteousness is different. And Jesus was Jewish. And the entire crowd was Jewish. Jewish. So it's important to understand that Jesus was not talking to 21st century America when he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount. Good. You're all like, what? Okay, perfect. A Jewish understanding would have meant covenant faithfulness. A faithfulness to the Torah. To be righteous was to live in accordance with the Torah, the law of God. And after Easter, we're going to get into all the, on the Sermon on the Mount, all the you've heard it said, but I tell you statements in the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to have some fun with the law. All right? And by fun, probably not the fun that you're thinking of. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to get into that. Um, because what Jesus is going to tell us is if your righteousness doesn't surpass those of the very religious and the very righteous, then good luck. And that's going to mess with us. But for now, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Um, to be righteous was to follow the law and obey the teaching of the law. And this was not simply about personal righteousness. This was about communal righteousness. Not just what I do is acceptable, but who we are. It is a communal thing, rightness as a people. Um, but then you get into, there's a bunch of in, different interpretations of the law. The Talmud, the Talmud is basically a commentary on, on uh, the law of God where all of these different rabbis offer their thoughts on how to interpret the law. So here's a fun one, all right? Shabbat, the holy day of the week, the day of rest, is to go from sunset to sunset, Okay? Eventually, that gets determined by clocks. But then you have to ask the question, when is, when technically, 
When is the sunset? Is it when it gets dark? Is it when the sun goes below the horizon? This is important because this is following the law. So when technically is the sunset? So I think this is wonderful. My Orthodox Jewish friends, Shabbat is actually 25 hours long, just in case. I think that's wonderful, because then what do you do next week, right? What do you do on daylight savings time? <laughs> right? Refuge folk, here's what you do. You set your clocks an hour and 15 minutes forward. <laughs> so to be righteous was to follow the, and obey the teaching of the law. And it was not simply personal, but it was communal. Um, and the baseline for this, the baseline for interpretation of the law was the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, and when Jesus is asked to summarize all the law and the prophets, he gives this beautiful summary um, what it means to be, uh, of what it means to be righteous in Deuteronomy 6, but he also adds to it Leviticus 19, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, which is what, class? Love your neighbor as yourself. What does it mean to be righteous? To love God and to love your neighbor. Jesus is talking about here, what, what Jesus is talking about, it's not simply that we are made right before God, but it's also that our neighbors are made right before God, that our world is made right before God. It is not simply personal righteousness, it is communal righteousness. And this gets sticky. It gets, it needs some interpretation. This involves relationships. This involves health, sexuality, gender, poverty, systems of justice and injustice, both harmony and how, the, how we are governed and also punitive, what is illegal, what is against the law, what's the end goal of our justice system. And it involves all the isms that you can think of, whatever ism, ageism, uh, sexism, all of those. Uh, it involves misogyny, it involves prejudice, greed, gossip, shame, guilt, fear, any and all aches of the world to be made right before God, to be made right according to God, to be restored to how the world was designed to be. And so this word righteousness could also be called restorative justice. That's often how it is interpreted. It's interpreted justice, but restorative justice helps put some context to it. To be restored to being right and just. For those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, what we're going to notice is that the problems with me and with the world around me, um, they don't just have easy solutions. Right? Um, do any of you worry? Does anybody here worry? Okay. Have you tried not worrying? Why don't you just do that? We can go down the list. Lust? Have you tried not lusting? I mean, it's pretty obvious. How about greedy? How about envy? Right? Have you tried not doing those things? Um, the, the solution 
to hungering and thirsting for righteousness is never, ever, we just need to. Here's one, if you worry. Have you prayed more? Just pray more. Get back to me. To hunger and thirst for righteousness gives us eyes to see how daunting sin really is. Um, Ronald Heifetz and Martin Linsky. Uh, they're brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. They are both, um, this will shock you, business professors at Harvard. And they are brilliant. And they talk about two types of problems. They talk about technical problems and adaptive problems. We've gone through this before. Technical problems have technical solutions, right? Every organization, every people, everything in the world, every household, every individual, there's two types of problems. Technical problems. Uh, the printer is out of ink. What do you do? That, I think that's a, dated, that's a dated thing, isn't it? Gosh. All right. Your battery is low on your phone. What do you do? You charge it. Um, the car is low on gas. Fill it up with gas. The check engine light comes on. You give it 10,000 miles and see if it goes off. <laughs> right. We're on the same page here, all right? So that is, that's technical problems. But then you also have adaptive problems. Adaptive problems are way more complex. They don't, there's not just a simple solution, right? The economy. There's not just a simple solution. Despite, well, uh, Poverty, relationships, righteousness. There's not just a, a simple solution, and we can't just solve it with the we just need to's. It's complex. We have differing opinions. We have differing approaches. We're going to have to live in a bit of tension with other people who say, well, I think we need to go this way, and we go, well, I think we need to go this way. But we do need to have a clear goal, Right? We do need to have a clear goal. And for anybody foolish enough to say there's a political answer to poverty or there's a political answer to the economy, we can have some variance in our, in our positions on those. But all politics are still run by men. Man, man, and men. Um, it's complex. And so what Heifetz and Linsky, what they say is the worst thing you could possibly do is to try to solve a technical problem with an adaptive, let me reverse that. Try to solve an adaptive problem with a technical solution. We just need to. A hunger and thirst for righteousness. We just need to pray more. You just need to stop doing those sinful things that you're doing. You just need to work for yourself. You just need to, that's not how it works. To have a hunger and thirst for, uh, for righteousness helps us to start to see the depths and complexities of my own sin, my own hurt, my own shame, and then how much that plays into the world around us when everybody else has hurt and shame and fear. And we deeply want safety for me and for my people, and we're deeply fearful of them and those people. And how do we find healing there? It can't be solved with a we just need to. Hunger and thirst for righteousness gives us eyes to see how daunting sin really is, how brilliant our enemy really is, and it gives us a hope that when Jesus returns, he will set all things right. He will untangle every web. Even the deepest angst of those hunger pangs will 
be satisfied. The calming that we sang about from Psalm 142, from Psalm Psalm 42, that we will will be one day satisfied. Or as Tolkien puts it in The Return of the King, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad coming untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. This is the promise for those who hunger, you will be fed. But a hunger and thirst doesn't, doesn't simply lead us to see the world and feel bad for it. It is moved and informed in this hunger and thirst by moving toward the desire for restoration and healing, which is mercy. Blessed are those who show mercy, for they will receive mercy. The word mercy actually denotes compassion in action. When Jesus is walking through the streets and people would yell out to him, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. They weren't yelling, Jesus, take it easy on me. They weren't even yelling, forgive me. They would not have thought that this man walking in the middle of the street had the power to forgive them. What they were yelling, have mercy on me, heal me, heal me. The word mercy has at its core a restorative and healing motivation. It is compassion at work toward healing. Perhaps the best known story of this uh, in scripture is the story of the Good Samaritan. When the Good Samaritan, when he shows up on the scene and sees the man who's been beaten and left on the side of the road, he doesn't just acknowledge his pain. He's not tolerant of his pain. He just, he, he bounds up his wounds He puts him on the back of his donkey. He takes him to a shelter and cares for him, nurses him back to health, leaves a couple days later, gives the innkeeper a couple of denarii uh, to keep an eye on him, and he'll pay him whatever needs to be paid. Jesus asked the lawyers who were seeking to justify themselves, seeking to find their own righteousness, which passerby proved to be a neighbor to the man beaten on the side of the road. And the Pharisee said, the one who showed what class? Mercy. Compassion in action. And he says, go and do likewise. This is where we enter the story of other people to practice denying the postmodern presumption that all of the world revolves around me and my experiences are what is central. All of time and history have, have existed to give us me, right? And I know that because that's all I've experienced. So I know it to be true. It's not true. To practice mercy is to enter the stories of other people, to enter their world, to see from their lens. It is actually the full living out of the golden rule to do unto others as you want them to do to you. James talks about mercy 
in judgment. For judgment is, uh, judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy is a conc concrete action toward the oppressed, toward the hurt, even toward the guilty, to act with compassion. And the promise is that we will be judged according to our judgment of others. So for those who are moved and compelled by mercy, they will receive mercy. The last one that we're going to cover this week in this list of blessings, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure in heart does not mean uh, perfect. Um, I'm going to use a word here, and I'm going to ask you not to overreact. All right? Everybody stay in your seats. And I'm going to give a definition of it. Pure in heart has the context of being authentic. Now, we use that word in our day. I'm going to be my authentic self. We use that kind of like, I, it's actually, I'm going to overreact to my authentic self and be anything but who I truly am. And you'll never know that because you can't question me. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to be who I want to be. Either, ru either ruled by shame or by following the rules. Like, take your pick. You can go right and left on this. What I'm talking about is not that. What I'm talking about, my authentic self, is not who I decide I'm going to be, but who I was made to be. That's what I mean by being authentic. To be pure in heart means not to be double-minded, not to be a dual person, not to have a life in private and a life in public. It is to be single-focused. It's not to be a hypocrite. It's not to say one thing here and another thing over here. Um, it is to tell the truth about ourselves. It is to be honest about ourselves. And to be honest with our hope, that our hope is not in making other people think we have our stuff together. Our hope is not in making other people think we're good. Our hope is not in the presentation or the resume. Our hope is fully in Christ. And when our hope is fully in Christ, we're not as consumed with the cover-up or with the presentation. Does that make sense? When we believe and are motivated ultimately by the love and trust of God, we suffer differently, we celebrate differently, we rejoice and worship and endure with clear eyes and I think with clear vision. Our hope is not in appeasing others, it's not in our appearance, it's not in our religious accomplishment, it's not in our resume, our circumstances, our, our hope is in Christ alone. And so we don't need to cover up, we don't need to pretend, we don't need to be a dual person. And the promise Je Jesus gives here I think it's twofold. When our eyes are fixed on Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith, as the author of Hebrews tells us, we're not easily dissuaded by the temptations of this world. We don't feel the need to cover up our own sin. We don't feel the need as much to overcompensate. But we can recognize often our desperate need and dependence on Jesus. We don't see maturity in Christ ever as needing Jesus less. It is always the end goal of maturity is to become fully dependent on Jesus. But also, and this is what you see in Christian story after Christian story, this is what you see in the Lord of the Rings uh, and, and every great story, uh, in enduring the long road of suffering and trial and the weight of this world that we will one day see clearly the face of God. 
that we will behold him as he is, that we will stand in, the, in front of those who knows us, who, know, uh, who knows us and loves us, God himself. You, will, may, you may endure shame, but you will not be left to shame. So, how do we practice this economy? What's your assignment for the week, all right? Um, again, this is not a list of things we do to be saved, but this is a list of what saved people do. Uh, it is the eyes that we were given as citizens of this new kingdom and this new economy. It is hope for the humble of heart, for the dependent. And what's beautiful in all these things, we're not saviors. We are proclaimers. We are witnesses to the savior. But the end is certain. We labor toward that end, accomplishing the work that God has already prepared in advance that we should do. So, last week for our exercise, what we did is I asked you to read through the Beatitudes and ask the question, why is this good news? Why is this good news to me? Why is blessedness and God's presence for the poor, for the, for the meek, for the humble, for the hunger and thirsty, why is this good news? And let that and, and I'll tell you to keep doing that, and we'll do it again next week. But then I want you to ask this question in follow-up. If this is good news, if this is my hope, if this frees me from having to earn God's love and instead frees me to labor in light of this new kingdom, then how does a freed person live? What do I do now that I know who I am? How do I live this out? How do I practice this economy? Jesus didn't come to tell us how to get to heaven when we die. Jesus came and his message was follow me. And we follow him through death into resurrection. So instead of asking the question, how do I get to heaven? Follower of Jesus, how do I bear witness to heaven here and now? How do I bear witness in word and deed to this glorious kingdom and this glorious reality. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you have loved us, that your blessing is on those who fear you, who, who walk in awe of you, not those who are in any way superior to anybody else, not those who continue to seek to have to try to prove our righteousness, either in how much we do or how much we know, May we leave that nonsense behind. May we be freed because of your love, because of your presence, and because of your blessing to live out the reality of this kingdom here and now, to bear witness to the glorious resurrection that the king has come, that the end is certain, that our savior has accomplished everything that he set out to do. And we are called to bear witness in word and in deed to this glorious new reality. So give us eyes to see, and may we labor with hands and feet that have been moved and shaped by your coming kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. 
For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.